You are now listening to EPT Podcast, an ongoing series of conversations with field experts in electronics design and engineering. This podcast is being presented by EPT Magazine, Canada's information leader for the electronics industry. I'm your host, Stephen Law, editor of EPT Magazine. Hello, and welcome to this podcast from EPT Magazine. Our guest is Rob Wood, Vice President for the Hardware and Embedded Security Services Practice at NCC Group, a global cyber and software security consultancy that serves multiple sectors, geographies, and technologies. Rob's career in embedded devices spans two decades, having worked at both BlackBerry and Motorola Mobility in roles focused on embedded software development, product, firmware, and hardware security, and supply chain security. Rob is an experienced firmware developer with extensive security architecture experience. His specialty is in designing, building, and reviewing products to push the security boundaries deeper into the firmware, hardware, and supply chain. Welcome to the podcast, Rob. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Well, as most of our listeners know, embedded systems are fundamental in any electronics design, as well as the consumer and user experience. Yet they often get overlooked in most discussions around security. Why do embedded systems not get enough attention in cybersecurity coverage, at least not as much as applications? Why do you think that is, Rob? A lot of that is history. Um, so historically, you know, back in the 90s, you know, Microsoft is a good example. Um, you know, think back to the, the Windows 95 days. The, the software stack on your PC uh, had a lot of vulnerabilities. It, it got hacked. As soon as people started putting these things on the Internet, it became uh, easy to attack remotely. Microsoft, of course, you know, they learned some really hard lessons that all of us ha have been able to learn from from them. Um, as a result, today, they have one of the most robust uh, security postures of, of any organization. Um, you know, they're not interested in, in knowing where the vulnerabilities are. They're interested in knowing where the trends are, you know, how, how they can systemically squash huge numbers of vulnerabilities. And so that extends to the whole application space. Um, and really, it is just because they were the first to be connected online. Um, embedded systems uh, typically have well, at least historically, have been isolated into specific use cases. You know, when we talk about embedded systems, we're talking about, you know, computers that don't look like computers, you know, no keyboard, no monitor, not meant for general user uh, interaction. Um, so, you know, you've, you have like wearables, you have uh, automation devices, you have like smart agriculture, you know, automotive, all of these things. And it's only really recently that these things have started to be connected online. Um, and so now suddenly all of the vulnerabilities that they've they've always had, I mean, these systems are built by humans, they make mistakes, uh, everything has vulnerabilities. Now that they're online, uh, those things are available to be attacked. Um, and, and so all of those lessons that we've learned over the last 20, 30 years, I just haven't been applied to those systems yet. And this is something that, you know, of course, uh, is, is happening uh, quite a lot more. Um, and, and I will take a little bit of umbrage with, with your point that, you know, embedded systems security doesn't get the attention it deserves. I, at least in my line of work, it does. Um, I spend all day, every day looking at exactly that. So, I mean, there definitely is pockets where the attention is definitely being put on it. Why are automatic updates still an issue? Do you believe manual processes tend to get ignored as in smoke detectors that don't get their batteries changed? Yeah, and the, the complexity of the ecosystem is probably largely to blame there. Um, you know, when, when you're talking about a software application that you've downloaded from like Adobe, Microsoft, Cisco, whoever provided that application, it's a one-stop shop. You can, you know, click a little button, get an update from their website, and it's done. It's over. Um, when you're talking about an embedded system, you're not just upgrading an application, you're upgrading the application, the operating system, the firmware, like the entire thing soup to nuts. And so 
it's a lot more complicated and not all of that comes from the same person or the same company. It helps to understand where these platforms come from, how they're actually developed. Um, when you're when you're choosing a microcontroller to base your product around, you're not choosing just the microcontroller and then writing the software from the ground up. I mean, that's the way we used to do things. That, nobody does that anymore. The, you know, the time to market pressures are just too high. And so you're choosing your microcontroller largely based on the types of support you're going to get from the vendor in, for, in the form of like a board support package, the, to, the tooling, um, you know, compiler and tool chains, the li libraries, all of these sorts of, of things that help you build your system faster. You, you know, you want to get your proof of concept out the door as quickly as possible to outpace your competition. Uh, and so you're inheriting a lot of code from your vendors. Uh, and this this goes to speak to the whole supply chain issue. You know, if you're building an Android device and you're gonna make it say a smartphone, you're gonna put a bunch of applications on there to make that your smartphone. But the base Android system you get from the chip vendor, you know, the Qualcomm's, the MediaTek's, the NXP's, whoever. Um, and, and they in turn got the operating system from Google who produces AOSP. Um, and they take, you know, they'll, they'll take that operating system and modify it to fit their platform. And their goal is to sell chips. And so what they want to do is kind of make that, you know, performant. They want to make it useful on their chips so that you buy more of their chips. But they're not really interested in security per se. And some vendors have a much better track record than others. Um, but their goal is really to get something that they can sell. Um, they really ship it as a reference design. You know, it'll have all sorts of different features that you can turn on and off and and, and security knobs that you can turn uh, as an OEM. But unless you go and do that, you, you know, you're not necessarily going to get a secure result. The other thing is that all, all of those things have security vulnerabilities potentially in them. And even though it's not necessarily your fault, it's still your problem as the OEM. And you don't necessarily get support in your in your contracts to, to get those ongoing updates. Google, you know, they, they'll announce a new version of Android and they'll say, we're going to support this for five years. But the chip vendors aren't necessarily going to keep porting that to their old platforms for five years because there's no money in that. You know, they don't, you know, if they're issuing software updates for an old platform, that means you're not buying new chips. You're just going to keep using the old ones. Uh, so there's not really a lot of incentive to provide those ongoing updates. And of course, every time there's another supplier in the chain, it's just more complexity and you have to get all of those fixes upstream. You know, so the, the Linux kernel has a bug, it gets fixed. Android has to pick that up at Google. Then they have to give that to like the Qualcomm's and, and their and their friends. And then that has to go down to the OEMs, which then has to get out to the users. And at any point along that chain, there could be a break. Um, you know, you could have uh, a, a contract that just, you know, updates aren't required. And so it doesn't happen. And so that's that's kind of the world we live in today. Uh, and, and it's just it's just a lot more complicated than you think. And, and there certainly are companies that are doing this. You know, there's you know home routers out there that cost two hundred dollars where you're getting nightly updates. And that's that's fantastic. Every time there's a security bug, it gets fixed as soon as they know about it. Uh, and, and that's excellent. But then there's there's others out there. And the FTC is a really great place to get a list of these companies where, you know, they regularly get sued for for knowingly putting out insecure products uh, and you know, not doing anything about it, even after they've been made aware of it. And the FTC has a big problem with that. And, and yeah, go check out their website. There's a bunch of companies out there that I'd never buy from. So speaking of complexities, I mean, most devices today are fundamentally complex, such <laughs> as an operating system from one third party, chips from another, and software from so many more. Uh, can you give us a typical configuration? Of how does this affect the level of security? Yeah, I mean, my background is smartphones, so I kind of color everything with that particular view. But um, a lot of devices, especially in the, the home automation space or industrial controls, a lot of these things run some form of Linux and are really kind of a cell phone in a different package. Maybe they're less mobile and more bolted down, et cetera. But really, they've got all the same subsets of features, et cetera. So, um, you know, when you're building something like that, you know, you're going to 
select a, a chip and and that chip will come with a board support package so that means like operating system libraries a lot of software tools etc um, and usually you can you know, spin a circuit board based on their reference schematic and you, and you can get up and running you know within weeks um, after making your your agreements with your vendor um, and, and of course a lot of this is open source code which is what allows them to to iterate as quick as they can and, and put out this so like you know, like I said, a lot of things run Linux, they run open source bootloaders like uh, UEFI or, or U-Boot. Um, and so, you know, you've got this reference board and, and usually this is, you know, something like, you know, it'll be 18 inches wide or whatever. It'll have all your different camera options and, and you know, other memory options and things like that that you can play with as you're developing the product. Uh, and then and then eventually you're going to massage that into a final board revision where it fits into the nice shiny plastics that your industrial designers have come up with um, to make your product. Uh, and all the while, of course, your software developers are modifying the firmware to add the functionality and the features that you need. And typically that's a, a combination of, of drivers. You, know, so you might have some kernel drivers that they add for specific cameras and whatnot. Some of that, of course, could be inherited from yet a different vendor um, and, and applications. So, you know, the things that allow it to communicate with your your backend services, you know, you've got some web services that these devices talk to, to, you know, do whatever it is they're doing. I don't know if it's a thermostat or, a, you know, some kind of industrial control system, industrial lighting, whatever it is, um, you know, and, and really that that whole end to end uh, feature set is really what you're trying to go for. That's what your customers want. You know, and that's the thing you're trying to sell. Um, so that's that's kind of in a nutshell, the complexity there. Uh, what are some of the most common vulnerabilities in embedded systems today, and how hard is it for attackers to exploit them? Yeah, so this is really the embarrassment of the whole embedded system space. The issues that we're finding day in and day out, uh, I mean, there's obviously some like logic issues and things that we, we like to find, but, but the vast majority of the firmware that we're looking at is still written in C, uh, and this is really a legacy uh, software language that's you know, it was never really created with security in mind. It's very flexible, lets you do lots of neat things. It, it's really close to the metal. And so what that means is you end up with a lot of uh, vulnerabilities because you're relying on the, the human programmer to like do things like manage memory. Um, and, and you know, people make mistakes, you get some simple buffer overflows, uh, you know, which can lead to very easy, ex easily exploitable uh, vulnerabilities um, where you can take over the system with some simple you know, exploits. The the other thing that we see quite a lot of on these devices is they're not they're not shipped with deep, uh, secure defaults. So you know they might have default passwords. You know your home router comes with a default password. Uh, you know the username's admin and the password's admin, and that's just the way it is. And they rely on the user to intervene to actually you know change those defaults. And a lot of users just don't. And so if this is a device that's connected to the wider internet, then of course the you know, attacker is going to try a bunch of default passwords, and sure enough, they're going to get in. Uh, the Mirai botnet a couple of years ago relied almost exclusively on exploiting default passwords. Uh, consequently, we actually have a few jurisdictions now that are passing laws against some of the most egregious problems like default passwords. Um, so in the UK, I think California and New Mexico already passed laws and Europe is, is about to. If they haven't already, I haven't checked on that one. Um, but but yeah, it, it's becoming it's becoming something that the governments are taking very seriously. And so, you know, below this line, your device will be so insecure that it's illegal to sell it here. Um, and, and the bar they're setting is really quite low. Uh, you should be setting your bar a lot higher. The responsible thing to do as a as an OEM is to you know take take your customers' security concerns seriously. You need to protect their data. Where where the governments are getting involved is where it becomes a big problem. So the, the Mirai botnet that I mentioned, um, the problem there was that there were so many of these devices out there. They were taken over by some some malware, and they were using like millions and millions of these mostly IP cameras and other similar devices that were connected online. 
they were using those to do denial of service attacks on large swaths of the internet. And it, it became a, a global issue, you know, like AWS went down as a result in some places. Um, so huge chunks of the internet went offline. There's just so many of these devices out there now that, you know, you have to take them seriously. So, you know, if you're a vendor of these you know devices that you're going to be putting online, it, it really is your responsibility to make sure you're not, you know, doing silly things. What are, are there legal, have you heard of any legal repercussions taken um, to uh, being brought upon an OEM or a vendor of uh, electronic devices that haven't taken those necessary security measures? So yes, but not not nearly as many as there should be. Um, so I mentioned the FTC. Uh, when when the when the companies are so bad that the FTC has to get involved, it's, it's really bad. And so there was a couple of examples. There was one, oh, I'm not going to name them because I might get the name wrong. Uh, anyway, they made home routers and they had like 90 or 100 models of these things that were vulnerable to specific bugs. And people reported it and said, hey, your things are vulnerable. And they're like, yeah, we're not going to do anything about it. And they didn't. And then this kept happening over and over again. And finally, the FTC stepped, stepped in and, and you know charged them with a whole bunch of money. There was another example. Um, it was a company, they were importing phones from a from an ODM partner overseas, and you know they they basically contracted out. And so this this is one of the other realities of modern devices is you don't need a team of twenty thousand people to build smartphones anymore. You can do it with a company of like ten or fifteen people because you can outsource almost all of it. And so they were basically having these phones built to spec from some uh, ODM partner overseas and basically deploy them on their local. Network. I think they were based in Florida. The company's called Blue Phone, and you can look it up online. But basically, they were selling these devices, and all of your all of your keystrokes were being sent off to to some uh, you know foreign servers and things like that. So it was basically like built-in keylogger, um, and this became known. And the company just basically didn't do their due diligence. They shipped a product that they didn't even test for these kinds of security issues, uh, and of course, you know, the FTC got involved. But the examples, the number of examples of of these kinds of lawsuits is I, I can count on one hand, um, and the number of companies that should be sued like this is like longer than you know you can imagine. Part of the problem there is there's a huge asymmetry. You know, as a user, it, I, I might be angry at a company for doing some, you know, big security faux pas, but I don't have the funds to go against some big company with like billions of dollars. Um, and so, you know, I can't, but uh, you know, the FTC is good. And I keep mentioning them, but they're one of the few uh, examples that I can point to where, you know, good things are happening um, in that space. We can point other companies to these as examples and say, hey, look, you're, you're doing the same thing these guys were doing. You better smarten up. Um, and so really that's kind of, it gives me hope for the future. But amongst our clients at NCC, we we don't focus on those who are doing it just, you know, because they have to. You know, the compliance-driven uh, clients aren't aren't really that interesting. There, you know, there are some, of course, where they're well, someone told us we had to do this, so we want to spend as little as possible and get it done and tick the box. And that happens, but it's 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 rare for us at least. Most of the clients that we deal with are those who are very proactive and they're like, you know, this this you know, security could be a safety concern in our products, you know, if it's in the automotive space or the, the connected health space. They're really interested in making sure that they're going above and beyond and and they've got really good threat models so you know they're looking at this product from you know what what can an attacker do what kinds of attackers are going to be looking at this product and then and then trying to figure out what they need to build in as defenses uh against those sorts of attackers uh and, and that's really what you should be doing at the start of any uh engineering project uh is, is kind of sitting down and figuring out how is someone going to misuse your product and and can you do anything about it and then of course the level of expense you put into that really depends on you know what the product is i mean some smart light bulb that you know, you know can be hacked to change your room from blue to red. Who cares, right? But you know, if it's a, a banking app, for example, and suddenly you know someone's got access to your finances, that's you know the damage could be much more severe. And depending on the level of risk, you know, then that kind of dictates how much you want to spend on on the defenses.
Are there any security standards or specs that the consumer, the end user of the device can rest assured that proper measures have been taken to uh, ensure security of usage? It is really hard. Uh, as, a, as a user, I mean, the vast majority of users aren't aren't savvy enough to go and like dump the firmware and reverse engineer it and figure out, you know, are there vulnerabilities? Did the vendor catch them before they sold it, et cetera? Um, there, of course, are going to be people doing that, um, but the vast majority aren't. So you look for other things, you, you know, you look for reputational uh, issues, you know, are, are they are, are they publishing, uh, you know, security updates with a regular cadence, you know, weekly, monthly, whatever it is, um, you know, d d does it appear that they're taking things secure, uh, seriously? Do they have uh, an easy way to report security vulnerabilities listed on their website? Um, you know, can, can you go to their website and say, well, I have a, just pretend you have a security issue you found and, you know, how am I going to report this to the company? A lot of companies, you just won't find anything. There's just no way to get hold of the right people. Um, whereas, you know, a more responsible company will have like, you know, right prominently on their main page at the bottom, probably it'll be like a, for security issues, report them here in a little form, you can just dump them in. Um, so, you know, there is a channel, there is a, there is a person behind that, that that's going to take your issue seriously. The, the other thing, of course, to look for is you could just search for like a CVE and then the product name. So there's like websites full of common vulnerability um, issues. So every time a vulnerability is found, you know, researchers like to get uh, CVEs assigned to them so that they can track them and et cetera. And these basically just like bug IDs essentially. But if you if you find like a long history of, of public bugs associated with a particular product, then that doesn't indicate necessarily that they're they're taking things seriously. So you, so you kind of want to look for those sorts of things. Um, and so, you know, of course, whenever I'm going to spend, you know, two, three, four hundred dollars on a on a new electronic gadget of some sort, this is the kind of research that I do. Um, and of course, not everyone's going to do this, but but this is what you get. Like you get what you pay for. And if you're going to buy a twenty dollar home router, you're probably going to get a really crappy one. And if you're going to pay two hundred dollars, you might get one that that actually does things properly. Enough said there for sure. Can't disagree. Uh, what are some of the most important steps manufacturers and developers need to take to strengthen their security measures? First and foremost is is having a, a robust security program. Um, have somebody who's accountable, whose job it is to make sure that the product is going to be secure. Uh, and they're going to do things like threat modeling. They're going to look at your feature set early on and say, well, if, if this thing has a camera, then you're going to have these privacy requirements. And they're going to take your list of uh, of feature requirements, and then they're going to bolt on a whole bunch of security requirements on top of that and say, okay, well, look, you're storing sensitive data in flash memory. So we're going to have to encrypt that. We're going to need firmware integrity, you know, secure boot. Um, and there's basically a whole lot of requirements that, that you need to do. And this is part of your normal requirements engineering that you do as part of any product. But instead of things like cost and performance and other factors, security needs to be at that table. If you try and say, you know, we spent two years developing this product, we're about to ship it. Let's, let's do a security review and make sure it's secure you're almost certainly going to have missed so many things that it's going to be impossible. Um, and it's way, way easier to just figure out what the secure path is and then stay on it than it is to try and course correct much later in the program and, and try and take something that's not secure and make it secure. So that, that sort of early requirements engineering is definitely important. Um, and part of that is threat modeling, making sure you understand, you know, what kinds of threats this product is going to be exposed to, who, who's likely to attack it, uh, what what is the risk if they are successful, and and then what kind of mitigations you can put in place to to help account for that. So I mean that's that's really the place that you definitely want to start. Uh, later down the road, of course, you have maintenance. Um, once you have these products in the market, you need to maintain them. So and this this isn't something that's very uh, exciting. Of course, you know re releasing new software builds for three, four, ten year old products is is kind of the grunt work of of any engineering firm, um, and it, and it's not the it's, it's not the sexy part of, of the of software development. And 
but it is necessary. It's required. And so one of the things that that frustrates me is that we have kind of this model. It's a, it's a business model that a lot of companies, well, pretty much everyone, you know, you buy you buy this device with a one-time fee and it costs like 80 or $100 and that's it. And so now you're expecting as a user to get software updates for free forever for this product. So at some point it's going to be end of life because, you know, the company who made it isn't going to provide software updates for free forever. So either you change the business model to more of a subscription-based where, you know, every three years, four years, whatever, you get a new a new phone from, from the company as part of your subscription, or or you have to accept the fact that it's going to be end of life. So, you, you know, you'll get security updates for three years. And after that, you know, it's no it's no longer viable to, to support and therefore you should throw it away and replace it. Mm-hmm. And this is something that, you know, it's kind of where we are today, but, uh, you know, I'm not aware, there's a couple of companies who are trying the subscription model, but it's, it's kind of foreign to people. Most people are used to just buying a stereo and it works forever. Um, but if you buy a smart stereo, uh, you know, Sonos had a big problem a few years ago. They were and they were adding new features, and they couldn't add the new feature. If I understood correctly, they couldn't add the new feature without breaking support for some of their, I think, 11, 12 year old devices. And so they decided to do that. Uh, of course, everyone who's using those old devices was really upset because this device that they've been using just stopped working. Uh, and so, yeah, that was a quite a PR nightmare for them. But I mean, how long can a company be expected to support something for free? It's uh, it's an interesting problem. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what what step or stage of the development uh, process should engineers be thinking about security? Every stage, <laughs> right right from the very first stage. Like, you know, a lot, a lot of people have a clever idea. You know, what, what if we put a, a microphone in everyone's house that they could talk to and get answers from Google? And that's cool. But, you know, unless they automatically went and thought, well, this is going to have obvious privacy concerns, then then we wouldn't have the devices we have today, you know you know, when you when you say, you know, hey, Google or Alexa or whatever, what's the weather? There, there's an awful lot of privacy engineering that goes in behind the scenes to make those things work in a, in a way that you're not going to violate the user's privacy. Um, you, you don't want always listening microphones, for example, scattered around your house. There's all sorts of sensitive things that you talk about in your house that you don't want necessarily others to know about. So, uh, you know, basically right from the very first inception of the idea, all the way through the requirements engineering, the threat modeling, the implementation, the design, like all the way through and all the way through to end of life as well. So even, you know, after you've end of life a product, you know, you that that product probably still has some viable lifetime. So a lot of companies, what they'll do is they'll say, well, we're not going to support this thing. It's been 10, 12 years. We're going to end of life this. We're not going to provide any updates. So we're going to open source it. Let the community support it. Um, and so, that, you know, you could do that. Uh, some, sometimes you'll find a, they'll outsource it to a third party company and say, well, we're not going to do repairs on these devices anymore. We're going to ha- contract that out to this third party and let them deal with it. Uh, and, and so there's security implications all the way along there as well. Um, anyway, re- the answer to your question is at every point. Now, is security for an electronic device always contingent on software or can an individual electronic component play a role in safeguarding? That's interesting. Um, so much of what we talk about, it really is just software, firmware. There's a lot of complexity in devices and, and to tame that complexity, software is kind of the, the easy answer. Um, you know, if you put a microcontroller in there, then you can, you can do the same functionality in software. And then if you don't get it right or you don't want to change it, you can tweak it, you can adjust it. Whereas if it's like, say, all analog electronics, you know, you, you can't change things, you know, with a simple software update. So, so software has really become that kind of universal tool that we use everywhere. When we're talking about security issues, though, we're really, in most cases, talking about things like user data. Um, and that's almost always going to be up in some software land, you know, in, in storage or or being transmitted over the Internet, things like that. And so software really is a large piece of the puzzle. Um, but we do have 
uh, on the hardware side, we do have very specific things that we do to, to mitigate some issues in software. So, you know, things like uh, controlling uh, boundaries between security domains, um, you know, ARM's trust zone or Intel's SGX, things like that. These are hardware features that are really designed to keep different software spaces separate, um, which allows us to do things like have secure key storage on our phones. So there definitely are hardware features that, that help support the security in software. And, and a lot of those can be undermined. And we've seen a lot of research lately about um, devices with uh, like shared resources. You know, if you read about the uh, Spectre and Meltdown vulnerabilities, re really those were about shared resources within the chip. And so there's like a side channel where, you know, information can leak from one secure domain to another. Quite interesting. But th those are really kind of at the bottom, like a hardware end of things where you know, hardware is starting to impact the security quite severely. Clearly, anytime a product malfunctions or shuts down due to hacking or malware is not good, but the stakes get much higher when we're talking about a medical device. What are some of the more common forms of security that designers can implement in medical devices? Yeah, and this is an area that I find very encouraging. Um, so the automotive space is another good example where, you know, safety and security overlap significantly. You know, computer's not under your desk anymore. It's rolling down the highway with your kids in the backseat. And so, you know, security issue can be quite severe there. Medical, of course, when you're talking about like implants and things like that, you know, if you've got a connected pacemaker or insulin pump, um, you know, somebody could cause havoc there for sure. Um, <clears throat> industrial control is another great example. If, you know, if you've got some machinery where people's lives could be at stake if there's a malfunction, um, of course, you know, big safety impact there. And anytime you have some kind of safety critical system, uh, that security is definitely something that has been taken seriously. And one of the things that I find very encouraging, especially in the medical space, is that all of the, all of the companies that I've spoken to are taking it extremely seriously. Um, the FDA has a, uh, it's a draft of a security requirements, um, but it's not, it's not finalized yet and it's been a number of years. So I'm not really sure what the timelines are on it, but even, even with it in draft, a lot of the companies, or at least all the ones I've spoken to, are, are taking both that FDA draft seriously and going even above and beyond that. They're like, well, what do we need to do to make this a secure product? Regardless of what anyone tells us we have to do, we definitely don't want anyone dying because our product wasn't good enough. And, and that's fantastic to see. I mean, this is really what you kind of expect from people in the healthcare industry. Like, you know, they're, they're there to, to help people, you know, releasing something that's not going to do that is, you know, not something they're going to willingly do. So, um, but really, it's the same kinds of vulnerabilities and the same kinds of things you want to do anywhere else. When you get down to it, we're talking about microcontrollers, running some software, doing the same things that any embedded system does. Um, it's just the application is different. So you know, instead of like an actuator that turns a machine on and off or whatever, you have uh, you know an insulin pump that injects a bit of medicine or something like that. It's really the same technology under the covers. And so we have all the same security lessons that, that you know we have to learn. How do security requirements differ for IoT devices as opposed to any other electronic related design? Under the covers, it, like I said, it's the same technology doing the same things. The application is really what dictates it. And so most of these security mitigations aren't free. Like if you want to build in domain separation between processes in your software, then you need a memory management unit on your CPU, which means you need to choose a CPU that has that feature. And so now instead of paying, you know, one to $2 for a CPU, you might be paying 10 to $12. And so that increases the cost of your product. So you need, you need to look at this and, and decide right from the beginning, is this level of security warranted? If this device is gonna be running third-party applications, if it's gonna have some sort of app store or anything like that, like a smart TV, you know, you can download apps to, to do various things. Well, now suddenly those apps 
come from another source. They could be doing funny things. Local attacks on the system could be important. So in that case like that, you definitely need to have that kind of process isolation. Whereas something like say a smart light bulb where it's not gonna run any third party code, maybe you don't care about those local attacks. And so really only remote attacks are important. And so something like that, you don't need an MMU per se. And so really, really what you wanna do is kind of look at this from a threat modeling perspective and decide what sorts of attackers are going to be looking at this product you know, what level of access are they going to have and then build in your mitigations appropriately. So, so the requirements really stem from that, that initial threat modeling. Rob, among your specialties is designing or building products related to supply chain. Can you elaborate for our listeners what some of those products are and how their importance has increased of late given what's happening in supply chains around the globe? Yeah, so supply chain really means something different depending on who you talk to. And so when I'm looking at supply chain, I'm looking at it from a, like say a product development perspective. Like as an OEM, I'm, I'm inheriting a lot of code. I'm inheriting a lot of you know, hardware technology of different sorts from, from my vendors. Are they doing the same level of due diligence that I'm expecting? Uh, and how can I improve that state? So you know, as a consultant, when we look at uh, you know, a lot of our OEM clients, you know, they're, you know, we'll find vulnerabilities in the code that they've wrote, but we also find a lot of vulnerabilities in their vendor's code. And so you know, they'll share those with their vendors and say, hey, look, we, we found these bugs. Can you go fix them? And so now the vendors are, are engaged. And, you know, every time we find bugs in the vendor's code and they fix it, that fixes it for a lot of our OEMs. You know, we might be dealing with like a dozen OEMs who are all using the same chipset. Um, and so if we can fix it upstream in their supply chain, then that fixes it for everybody, which is which is always fantastic. Um, so, you know, more recently, we've been doing a lot of work with our, our chipset and platform clients who, who are kind of up that stream in the supply chain, make, making those those platforms for, for OEMs to build on and, you know, helping them make those more secure. And so that's really, really excellent. In a previous life, we worked on uh, pushing the security deeper into the supply chain. We were actually implementing some security features in the in the chip foundry. Um, so, you know, we, in, in that case, it was more about provisioning. So, you know, we want to make sure that, you know, we're building products that can only run our firmware. And so this means enabling secure boot on modern chips. That means there's like a, like fuses on the chip that you have to provision to set you know your your code signing keys you have to turn on secure boot disable jtag etc um and and we didn't necessarily trust our factories to be doing those steps correctly uh our factories at the time were all out you know outsourced um and you know we asked them to do it but our ability to verify that they did things in the right order was somewhat limited we didn't have our own people on the factory floor etc um so we worked out a system where we could get the chip vendor to do that you are speaking to an audience primarily comprised of electronic engineers and designers across Canada. What final or parting advice can you share with our listeners as they contemplate their next design aspirations? Yeah, I mean, this is a really easy one. If for anyone who's seen the, that show Black Mirror, I think it was on Netflix, uh, it's really excellent. Uh, and really, it centers around technology and how it could be misused. Uh, you know, what if you're starting a new project, a new, a new device of some sort, ask yourself, how, how is someone going to misuse my product? How is someone going to do something I didn't intend? And, and really, that is the difference between, you know, functional testing and security testing. It's, you know, functional testing is like, you know, does, is this thing supposed to do these things and does it do them? And security testing is, is it not supposed to do these things and does it do those? And, and really, it's uh, tr trying to find those gaps. Um, you know, what, what does your system do that, that you didn't intend? You know, are, are there interesting functionalities that, that could be used in weird ways? You know, can I bypass, uh, you know, authentication mechanisms through some sort of side channel leakage? You know, all, all sorts of questions like that. But but really put put your attacker's hat on. And like, if I had to break into this system, how would I do it as the person who built it? You know, where are the ba back doors? You know, where's the debug functionality that, that I rely on as a developer? 
what if an attacker had access to those? You know, are they authenticated properly? Does does it require uh, both a user password and an OEM password, for example, to to access your debug logs and things like that? You know, th these are the sorts of things that that as a designer you really want to be looking at. And then right from the very beginning, make sure that all of the requirements in your in your product have corresponding security requirements to make sure that they can't be misused. Well, we've come to the end of the session and we have certainly learned the importance of ensuring that anyone producing connected devices has the framework and tools they need to make them secure. Thank you so much to our podcast guest, Rob Wood of NCC Group, located in Toronto, by the way. We hope our listeners now better understand why attacks on embedded systems are increasing in frequency and what you can do about it. Thank you, Rob. No problem. Until next time, thanks for tuning into this podcast from EPT Magazine.